We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It is a brand new year, and that always brings brand new optimism. It's uh, We're completing now the first week of 2024. Let's bring in Steve Jordans, Professor of Psychology, University of Toronto, and here now. Steve, thank you for the time. Happy New Year to you. Thank you, Scott. I, I predicted uh, always walk, always look on the bright side of life with your song, but I got to... There you go. Why not? I mean, is there any other way to look at it? So obviously, Steve, we've talked at length over the course of uh, a global pandemic and, you know, into last year, out of last year and such. What's the mood of Canadians now? Uh, are, are we optimistic at, at this point or in a new year, we just generally become optimistic, even if it's for a short period of time? Yeah, as long as we think of optimism and pessimism as relative, <laughs> then I think this time of year, we're probably relatively optimistic. It's, it's, I mean, we all know it's a tough time. There are so many things going on that are stressing us all at so many levels that it's hard to say people are optimistic. In fact, there's, there's a whole lot of anxiety around. Yeah. But each new year does make you feel like, okay, fresh start, chance to kind of make some changes, um, at least at the personal level of our life. And, and that's empowering. So it's really good if we can do that. It makes us feel, it sort of feeds that optimism and keeps it growing. All right, that's sort of an extension of, of my next question, Steve. How can you use the ne- uh, the new year to change the outlook? Yeah, so, you know, what what I often recommend, so the first thing I'd like to say is you have to realize the challenge that's ahead of you because when we get these ideas of what we'd like to do, that's our frontal lobe. That's our conscious mind talking. But all our habits that guide so many of our behaviors come from the more primitive limbic system. And so when you're talking about changing behavior, you're talking about actually reforming habits, trying to get control of old habits and change them. And that's a very difficult task, and it has to be kind of seen that way. And, and the best way to kind of achieve it is to really break it down a little bit. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an absurd example. But this, you know, the standard New Year's thing is, oh, I'd like to get into better shape. What I would recommend to some people, if you really want to do that, spend your first few weeks just driving to the gym and coming home. <laughs> or even stepping in and coming home, or wherever you would exercise. If it's down in the basement, go down there, come back up, and make a habit that two times a week or three times a week, you will find yourself in that spot. That's wow. a really easy habit to create. You know, it's not asking a lot of you. Once you have that foothold, once you're like able to do that, then you can start building on it. Okay, now I'm in the gym, I'm going to do 10 minutes on this machine, and I'll be rewarded. And what that will teach you is that you do have the power to reprogram your mind as long as you don't try to take on the whole thing in one big bite. Take small, little, achievable bites. That's an interesting way to look at it, Steve, because it's less about or as much about changing or dropping or losing old habits, but you have to be have the mindset that you are creating a new habit. Yeah, that old habit is there, and if you, if you give it the chance, um, it requires early on a lot of focused attention. If you give it the chance, it will reinstate itself. It's worked for you as far as the brain is concerned. It's worked for you for years, um, and, and everything's going fine, and you have to say, no, no, this isn't working for me. But you're really fighting with the most primitive forces of the brain, uh, and so that's why you really have to do it smartly and in a way that makes you feel empowered. That's the critical thing. You want to keep feeling like, hey, I'm doing this. And the small things you can do, and then you can build on those small things. I'm I'm thinking of another conversation I had with somebody else. Uh, This is coming right out of left field. But Steve, what percentage of what we do every day is habitual? 
Any idea? Yeah, well, yeah. So, so the, the claim by many psychologists is the vast majority. You know, if you just imagine, I'm talking to you and I'm walking around this weird area and I'm not paying any attention to, you know, where my legs are or moving my muscles or doing anything. The vast majority of what we do is habit. And in fact, some people think our conscious mind is only really kicked into play when habit isn't working. So either we have some task ahead of us we've never done before, and so we have to figure out how to do it, or exactly what we're talking about. We have habits, and they're not working for us, and so now we want to use our conscious mind to try to overcome those. Those seem to be the two biggest uses of our conscious mind. Uh, The rest of the time it hums along. We hear it doing things, but as far as it actually kind of controlling our behavior, very small percentage. It's vastly habits. All right, so here we are completing the first week of 2024, and, you know, it has been a very difficult last few years. We've talked at length about it. Is yeah, this year well, any diff- Is this year any different? Um, I mean, I guess every year is different, but is it, you know what, the same sort of habit you're talking about, same sort of thing, same sort of, uh, maybe different challenges, but challenges to overcome. Is this year different? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, tr- I'm trying to latch on to something. I mean, certainly we had this whole pandemic thing that came up as we're coming out of it, to the, the habits we'd formed in the pandemic are not that old. Um, and so they're not as strong as those ones we built up for decades previously. So maybe, you know, to some extent, emerging from the new habits of the pandemic and then creating new habits on top of that could be a little easier in this period of time than it would have been pre-pandemic. Uh, but otherwise, you know, it, it largely really comes down to less where we are in the world, less whatever, and how intelligently you create your habit change approach. Um, and, and that's really what it'll come down to in terms of your success. Or, or. All right, only got a few seconds left. Some advice for those that are feeling less than hopeful right now. Yeah, so, so there's this notion called learned helplessness, and that's when you're trying to do something and you fail, and you try and you fail. Often that happens because you're trying to do something too big too fast. Um, better to do small and succeed. That feeds your feeling of empowerment. And, and I use that word a few times, but it's really important. That's what keeps you motivated and keeps you trying. Um, and so that's the most important uh, variable in terms of your success. And once you understand that, get that right first and the rest will flow from there. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, with some more great advice to get the year started. Steve, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott, and Happy New Year to everyone. I want to spend as much time as I can with Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Give us an update on uh, what is happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, with the Hamas-Israeli war, a lot of the attention has been put there, and uh, Ukraine, um, I guess, in the shadow of all of that. And very recently, not a lot of attention given to this, but there was a prisoner swap between Russia and Ukraine. To talk more about this, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and here now. Elliot, thank you for your time. Happy New Year. Well, thank you. It's uh, great to start 2024 with our conversation, Scott. Yeah, we really look forward to another year of this. Uh, we really do appreciate your time. So, obviously, with what has been happening, we certainly know uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, as of October uh, in the Hamas-Israeli war. How much attention is this taking off the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine? Is this impeding Ukraine's efforts at all? 
Yes, I think uh, undoubtedly it is. It's not only taking attention, but also resources. So while the world is paying attention, deservedly so, to yet another conflict, and a hot conflict in the Middle East, we have to remember that this is an ongoing uh, war in Ukraine. It's uh, second year now we're heading into, so uh, it's it's really a, a pity in a sense that Ukraine has to struggle for attention in what, as they say, if you look at their web pages, Ukraine is fighting the war for us, and there's a lot of truth to that mm. slogan. So yes, Ukraine is continuing to struggle against this illegal imperial ambition and the changing of the of, of the norms of the last seventy years that you can go across a border and change the territorial boundaries uh, by force. So this is really a, a very significant move by Russia that's underway, and we can't forget it. Um, uh, as you mentioned, um, this is obviously taking attention, or Israeli Hamas were taking attention away from this, and we're hearing of funds drying up in the U.S. and U.K., advocates in Canada uh, pressuring our government to put pressure, I guess, on the allies to to replenish any of that. Is, does any, uh, what's next there? Well, I think that's an indication of Ukraine's effort to see to it that they're not forgotten uh, as the war goes on and it doesn't become yesterday's news that somehow it's below the fold and then disappears onto page seven or something. Uh, this is a hot war that's going on. The request comes from the Ukrainian National Congress uh, here and you know, obviously representing a lot of the Ukrainian community, large community, uh, Ukrainian community here in Canada, saying, uh, well, look, we know we can't actually make up for all of the deficits in American provision of, of money and of arms, but we can at least uh, be sure that Ukraine is not forgotten using our membership in uh, the G20, the, you know, the G7, NATO. Uh, we are actually, you know, kind of important. We tend to underestimate the fact that we are a G7 country in a world where that actually means something and a strong NATO partner as well. We've talked over time, Elliot, well, since all of this began way back when, when Russia said this was a, you know, few day military operation, it's now dragged on what seems like forever. Uh, and, and during that time, we've talked about ways out, uh, how this comes to an end, and even just attrition, burning each, uh, uh, each side out. Has your opinion on any of this changed? Where do you see this going? Well, my concern is that Mr. Putin's winning his gamble that he can basically outweigh everybody, outweigh the West, and then change yeah. the geopolitics of the world in his favor and against uh, not only Europe, but against the whole concept of democracy versus autocracy and rule of law instead of rule of force. Uh, he's suggesting all along, basically, that we're going to lose interest, and the danger is that we might be the what we've been calling the the Putin wing of the MAGA movement, uh, that is the Republican Party in the United States, has a strong component in it that really wants to basically, although they're not yet using that phrase and the Democrats are holding it, cut and run, saying, okay, we've given them a lot of money. Uh, we have a problem at our border down here. Why can't we pay attention to that instead of that distant war over there? That's none of our business anyway. Uh, if they can't make a go of it after the money we've given them, well, let's, let's cut our losses. So uh, the struggle in Congress right now is absolutely crucial because uh, Mr. Biden, President Biden, is running out of his authority to allocate funds without congressional approval uh, to what's going on in Ukraine. A major spending package 
has been held up, as we know, by the Republicans in the House of Representatives, saying we want real action and change on the border with uh, Mexico. We have a migration problem, and somehow that's related to Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan. There's a, there's a bill in pending, uh, and a lot of the attention has been saying, oh, it's a, you have to help Israel. But actually, the largest portion of the bill that's sitting stuck right now in Congress goes to Ukraine then to Israel in terms of amounts, and to Taiwan. And we shouldn't forget that uh, potential conflict as well. So the U.S. is trying to maintain its pledge to stay as long as, as necessary and to provide whatever is uh, necessary. But it's all mired now into U.S. politics and really the fate of not only Ukraine and therefore Ukraine's um, uh, fate and future really affects the entire West. I mean, it, it affects the world. The big picture right now, Scott, is that you know China's trying to push <laughs> push America and us, the West, out of their region, and Iran is trying to push Saudi Arabia to the margins, but to push Americans out of that region and working with Russia uh, closely, along with North Korea, to help push uh, American interests and Western interests, NATO interests, out of Europe. And, and obtain dominance. That's kind of the big global picture as we start 2024. Uh, should, in retrospect, and hindsight's always 2020, should this have been handled differently from or by the Allies? And by that I mean when this first started, dribs and drabs of stuff are coming into Ukraine to help, and then a bit more, then a bit more, and there's always these political announcements, oh, here's more, here's more, here's more. But it was sort of like a really slow process, as opposed to, do you want to win this thing or not? And if you got it going to win, you got to go in gangbusters and then get the heck out. Um, the, have we handled this incorrectly? Uh, yes and no. I think it, Mr. Putin's great shock was the degree to which both the EU and NATO could get together very, very quickly and present an opposition, a united oppositional front, uh, both on the EU, but civilian side and NATO, you know, the kinetic pointy end of the stick side. The unity of NATO and the unit of the EU, which is kind of a, an immediate product of this invasion, mm. I think shocked him. He thought one week war, nobody's going to step in and help this little miserable country of Ukraine, which isn't a real country after all, it's really Russia, and we will then change the geopolitics of, of Europe to our advantage, and then we will move on into, you know, Moldova and and then uh, eventually dismember NATO and, and EU unity as well. All of that was a big shock. Having achieved that, however, the shaping of the war by Mr. Putin by initially threatening you know, military confrontation of a nuclear side has really kept Mr. Biden, who keep repeatedly says the U.S. and NATO are not going to go into a direct war, mm. particularly a nuclear war with Russia. And that has, after the initial support, which was shocking, I think, to Mr. Putin, has indeed been exactly as you described it. Okay, they want this, we're not, we're not going to give it. Oh, okay, now we'll give it. Now we need more. So right now we're at the stage where the F-16s are the issue, the air cover. Um, the next big stage in this provision of materials is to sustain what they need, lots and lots of ammunition. The anti-aircraft, the air defense systems, a key uh, to this. You know, <laughs> Ukraine is really doing their part. Using Western equipment, they have shot down most recently all 10 of the hypersonic missiles that Russia has launched at them. Russia launched this massive, yeah. massive attack on Kiev and Kharkiv in particular, 1,000 missiles 
of all kinds, but that included their hypersonic missile, which they said makes us invincible. And so the West is doing its part, but indeed not in the coherent and and the united way. And we talk a lot about the fact that Mm. Russia's paying an enormous cost, uh, Scott. I mean, the the actual physical cost, but also uh, perhaps a thousand soldiers a day are killed or wounded on on the Russian side. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science with Carleton University. Elliot, we got to get you on for two segments because we didn't even get to the prisoner swap. We will get to that soon. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Oh, thank you. Anytime, anytime, Scott, and uh, Happy New Year. All right, so if you grew up watching TV in the 70s, you'll remember Starsky and Hutch, those two cool detectives. And this only ran four years. It was funny. I thought it ran much longer than that. Uh, David Soule of Starsky and Hutch, he would have been Hutch, has passed away. To talk more about this and this era of TV, Bill Brio with us, TV critic and author. He is with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Happy New Year to you. What are your thoughts on this show? My God, eh? It's been so long. I mean, I can't tell which one was Starsky and which one was Hutch. (laughs) I'm glad you identified uh, Soul as Hutch. I think, um, you know, what I remember is these two guys, yeah, they were cool, but they drove the least cool cop car ever, like a Torino. I know. I know. You know, go ahead. It really, when you look back on it, of all the collectible cars, I had never really gravitated toward that one, but uh, they had the sunglasses, they had the look, and uh, they had the attitude. You know, they were kind of goofing on uh, each other, which I think audiences were ready to embrace at that point. Uh, You know, I was a car guy. I am a car guy. And, you know, a kid growing up in the 70s, so anything like with a car in it or chases, I was in. I was all over it. And I don't know how many times they went over the hood of that Torino with a gun in their hand and and so on. But uh, we heard it there in the the, uh, opening music and the theme. You can hear this car. It sounds like uh, it sounds like Steve McQueen's Mustang in you know, in bullet. And it's, it's this, it's this car with a three in the tree and, 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 you know, Starsky's driving it like it's, you know, a NASCAR or something. And if you're a car guy, you just look at this and go, why does this, why are we so interested in this? Yet it seemed to work for a couple of years. They had that formula that literally set the tone for every parody of uh, two guys in a cop car for the next 50 years. And uh, so let's hats off to him for that. But interesting, like David soul, I remember that song. Don't uh, give up on us. Baby was uh, certainly charted here in in Canada as well. Um, But he went to England and had a long career there later on stage. So, you know, and he was on here come the brides, I believe before Starsky and Hutch as well. So quite a long career. Uh, talk about his hit record days. Yeah. Like, you know, he was a teen idol in a way. It seems, um, yeah. If you were a star and you could sing, you got a record too. Yeah. You know, when people joke, David Hasselhoff was a big, uh, uh, recording star in Germany kind of thing, right? Everybody had some sort of record deal if you were on TV. Uh, but th- this was legit. People liked that song. Uh, and he was a singer. Absolutely. Even before he was an actor. Uh, so you know, it, it was just the 70s, man. We just loved uh, all that kind of convergence of uh, talent and pop uh, stuff. And uh, Michael Glazier, the other guy, he went on to produce a lot of stuff, did he not? He did. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, the two of them, uh, you know, that that show was 
remade Starsky and Hutch, of course, with uh, those, uh, you know, in more recent times. And I think yeah. that the two original leads managed to sneak into that newer movie as well. So as you look back at this era, you know, I'm thinking of the streets of San Francisco, uh, this show, um, Charlie's Angels. They were all sort of on at the same time. Oh, yeah. Mannix, Cannon. Uh, you know, they, there was a lot of them. But the, the one I liked, I think, was the Rockford Files. It had the best theme song. And uh, he had a good pair of wheels on that show as well. And he just had that attitude. But certainly Starsky and Hutch. They were, uh, I just think that the fact that they didn't play it as straight as some of the others. Mannix was, he was not fooling around. These Uh, guys were, and that was what was fun. Yeah, and I'm not sure you can compare those two, you know, with uh, Starsky and Hutch and some of the other shows that were uh, a little, because this almost seemed kind of campy. It was almost like it was a parody of itself. It was campy, but, you know, really so was canon. The whole idea of a 300-pound detective, you know, and there was so many jokes about him being fat every episode. Like, it was it was offensive. <laughs> you wouldn't see that today, would you? No. All right. Uh, Bill Brio with us, TV critic, author, uh, The Passing Away of David Soul, and apparently I'm the only one that remembers uh, Hutch, Starsky, and Hutch. <laughs> Thank you, Bill, as always. Happy New Year to you. Uh, happy New Year to you, too, Scott. Vulcan rocket aims to be the first private mission to the moon. Uh, China and India scored moon landings. Russia, Japan, Israel, not so lucky. Now two private companies are hustling to get the U.S. back in the game more than five decades after the Apollo program has ended. It's part of a NASA-supported effort to kickstart commercial moon deliveries as the space agency focuses on getting astronauts back there. Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and is here now. Paul Thank you for the time. Happy New Year to you. And Happy New Year to you too, Scott. So, Paul, tell us about this. Uh, Obviously, we've heard of Elon Musk and SpaceX and other uh, private companies getting involved with NASA. What's the difference here? And, and, And what are we delivering to the moon? So there's a couple of things happening here. First off, uh, the United Launch Alliance, which has been traditionally for the last 50 years, the principal deliverer of commercial satellites into Earth orbit, is upping their game. And they've created what they call the Vulcan Centaur rocket. It's going to replace their Atlas V and their Delta IV rockets, which were their uh, workhorses. So we're creating a more reusable rocket. This is taking a page out of uh, SpaceX's book, and they'll be able to use more of this rocket so not throwing it all away. And its inaugural flight is going to deliver the Peregrine uh, um, lander to the moon, which is a NASA-sponsored payload, as you indicated, to jumpstart commercial payloads to the lunar surface. And if successful, it will be hopefully uh, both a scientific uh, bonanza for NASA in preparation for Artemis, but also to help pave the way for other commercial companies going to the lunar surface. In case uh, there aren't regular listeners uh, understanding what's going on this or people that haven't listened to the show, what is NASA's plan for the moon in the next uh, future? Okay, so this year we are going to launch Artemis II, and that is complete with uh, Jeremy Hansen and the Canadian astronaut. Uh, the Artemis II program, uh, right, sorry, flight, is to take 
astronauts to the lunar environment and back again. As you indicated again earlier, we haven't done that since 1972, Apollo 17. So Artemis II will basically be the trailblazer to take humans out of the Earth's gravitational field, swing them around the moon, it's not a landing, and bring it back and fully field test all of the new hardware of the space launch system that NASA has been working towards for, well, basically a decade. And then if that goes well, and we are expecting it will later this year, then in probably 2026, it might be 2025, but in the next one to two years, Artemis 3 will carry astronauts to the lunar surface. And so again, we will replicate, in essence, what Apollo 17 did 50 years or more ago. And the, the 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 large plan, the big picture here is to build some sort of compound station on the moon. Is that accurate? Absolutely. It's to stay. I mean, for those of us who either lived through Apollo or at least have read their history, uh, Apollo really was a, uh, a get there, win the moon race, win the space race against the uh, Soviet Union, and then stop. And of course, that was silly. We should never have stopped. We did all of the hard work in getting to the moon. And then the politicians of the day basically said, been there, done that. Not so this time. NASA seems very committed, as does the US funding source, the government as do the commercial entities all around, not just the US, but around the world. They seem now quite determined to go back to the moon, make the investment and build a lunar economy, which will include a lunar settlement and you know, boots on the moon to stay. And part of that lunar economy, obviously, if you're looking at development up there and very much like the space station, these companies are investing in basically a space trucking firm that will take stuff up and back to create all of this. I mean, this uh, th that's quite a, uh, a futuristic venture that will last for a couple of decades, no? Forever. Hopefully forever. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we're talking about stepping foot on the moon and never leaving it ever again. And mm. the colony that builds there, the settlement that builds there will be a mix of, you know, industrial type activities, both inside a lunar uh, habitat. So we're talking about biomedical, you know, uh, uh, not zero gravity, but low gravity type uh industries, as well as mining lunar resources, which of course is going to end up in the political political arena. It's going to end yeah. up in a legal arena. I mean, you're, you're opening up a can of worms when you go back to the moon and start exploiting the resources and you start drawing boundaries and saying this belongs to this country and so on. Th this is going to be fraught with challenge, but from the larger perspective, humanity will create an outpost beyond the Earth's surface. Is NASA in the United States still the world leader in all of this? Are they are, are they still winning the space race? I guess you would have to say yes, but they're not doing it alone anymore. Unlike the days of Apollo mm. back in the 60s, where literally it was just the US that was funding it, it was just the US that was driving it. Now, when we talk about space age activities, it is a much more community-oriented activity. It's, it's not as community-oriented as I would like. Uh, for example, you know, NASA refuses to do things with the Chinese, and obviously in recent years there's been problems with Russia and so on. However, the International Space Station is 16 entities outside of Russia. When we talk about going back to the moon, the European Space Agency, which is a dozen countries in Europe, are all engaged. Canada has always been engaged uh, in recent activities associated with NASA. So it's 
is a much more community-driven affair, which means all of our expertise are being pooled to make this work. And of course, we're sharing the costs, we're sharing the burdens. So it is, I think, a better blueprint. And we can thank the International Space Station, I think, for giving us that blueprint. Paul Delaney with us, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. Uh, Space is getting crowded and only going to continue to do so. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This is a very bizarre story. And, um, you know, I guess we can't make too many comments till we get all the story. And we're, we're trying to get the version from uh, the school board. But uh, Leah Wittig is a school crossing guard, or was, in Tavistock, Ontario. And she's looking for an explanation. After she said she was moved from her usual post, it seems that decision was made after uh, she visited her regular crossing location while off-duty ahead of the holidays dressed as Mrs. Claus and handed out candy canes to the students and parents she typically sees uh, every school day. Uh, Winnie was unaware there was any sort of problem until she received her schedule next year, and that's when she found out she was assigned to a different post, then notified or, or explained to by somebody on the inside that it was because of this incident. Leah Wittig is with us now. Leah, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hello? Hi, can you hear me, Leah? Yes, I can. You just cut out there for a minute, but I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, Leah, do you know why you were removed from your post? Did they give you any sort of official explanation? Yes, they did give me an explanation. But first of all, I want to correct you. It has nothing to do with the school board. It's the township of Tavistock, Isora. Okay, it's thanks very much for clarifying. Yeah. It's the ta- it's a township yeah. that uh, does the uh does the school crossing, nothing Hiring to do with the, the board. crossing and everything. Yes. Okay, cool. It was them. Okay. Um yeah, so so, like <laughs> so uh, do you know why you were moved from the post? Uh, obviously, they've changed your location. Did they give you any explanation for that? Okay, first let me explain that I had had some health problems, so I went to my supervisor and said, I'm going to have to be off for a little bit, but I will be back. And she says, Leah, take care of yourself. Just do whatever you need. Your post will be there waiting for you, which I've had for about five years. I have worked for them longer, but before my post, I was a fill-in. Right. So that's what I was told. So um, come uh, just before Christmas, I put it in. I advertised that there's a rumor going around that Mrs. Santa Claus is going to be at that post. Hmm. All I got back was all positive remarks. So, of course, I was there as Mrs. Santa Claus, totally Mrs. Santa Claus, not as a crossing guard. There was a crossing guard there taking care of the crossing. So I had 200 candy canes, handed them out to the kids, the parents. I got hugs from them all, you know, including the parents and everything. I thought it was a great day. It was just wonderful. It was a Christmas gift to me. And another thing I want to say, this isn't about me getting my post back. This is us doing for the kids for what they need. Mm. So anyways, I did that and I never heard anything until the, till the schedule came back up for the new year. Mm-hmm. And I got an email saying that I'm no longer at that post. I am to do another post where there's only three or four children going. 
to me, that didn't make sense. How do they know I won't do the same at that post? Yeah. <laughs> what makes it any safer at one, uh, one location to another? Yes. So they did ask me for a meeting, and I was in a meeting with them yesterday. And I asked them, how long is my post for? How long do I get paid for? 15 minutes. So I said, when I'm finished that, I can talk to the kids and, and I can, um, you know, hug them or whatever. No, I'm not allowed to hug any child in this town at any point except at my home. Mm. Because I'm employed by um, the township. The township. And I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. But they offered my post back and I said, okay, I will follow your rules while I'm crossing. I will not hug the kids, which I have done. Mm-hmm. Because I've had children come to me in tears and mm-hmm. I'll say to them, why are you so sad? My grandmother just died. So I would mm-hmm. hug them and talk to them. Right. I have blown, I don't know how many noses, white tears. Mm-hmm. I have given gloves out to kids that found, forgot their gloves. It's, yeah, you know. Do you know, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. (laughs) So uh, do you know if there was any sort of complaint issued? Like what, what was, uh, you you know, or somebody just saw, no, there shouldn't be Mrs. Claus out at a crossing guard, at at a crossing situation? No complaints. Just the township said it was a no-no. So is this, so how, fire me. Fire me then. If I've done wrong, fire me. No. So why can't, so why me before? Yeah. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that's cool. That's fine. Um, so why would they not like they've offered you another post? Why would they not just give you your old one back? Yeah. I don't know because I don't follow the rules, but Mm. I promise them I will follow the rules while I'm crossing the kids. Yeah. Not good enough. I cannot hug or touch or get personal with a child even after I am done work, done my crossing. So so is the conflict here about losing the post or the fact that you can't hug the kid if, if a kid needs it? I know. This sounds complicated, doesn't it? Yeah. I. It's not about losing my post. It's about the reason and the way they took the post away from me. Right. For five years, this is what I've been doing. And just because the one day I came down there off duty as Mrs. Santa Claus made the kids happy, they finally cut, like, changed my post. They so, me because that'll could be, it, like, let me, let me yeah. play devil's advocate here, Leah. Could it have okay. been because you were off and you were ill that they found another person that did this? And I don't know, maybe there's some sort of agreement there where that person stays there. But I guess none of that was ever, that was never explained in any way. No, because it was my husband. They gave the post to my husband. So it was taken away from him, but he is only part-time. It was given to another crossing guard full-time. The crossing guards, first of all, in town do a wonderful job. They, the safety of the kids come first for them. I will never knock any of the other crossing guards. So, um, and he was keeping all the kids safe at that corner that day, which they so, knew. So did, did you know when you were a crossing guard that you're not, you can't, you know, they don't allow you to hug the kids? Was that part of the... I did know. Yeah. I did know. So the final thing is, like I've been telling others, the 
I've been interviewed by many. I've had over 300. Anyways, the, the thing here is maybe it's not the township's fault. Maybe we need to redo the rules. I understand the rules being don't distract the kids when you're crossing them or hugging them or anything. Like yep, that. no, that makes I'm sense. Done, why can I not comfort a child? This is what they need. Yeah, yeah. You know? Where is this it's, going it's from here? Do you... done, it's not we're, that what's we're... been done wrong with me. It's what's done, yeah. been done wrong for the kids. And can you remember years and years ago, kids were allowed to be seen and not heard. Is that what we're going back to? Yeah. What, is where is this what going? going back to? Where is this going, Leah? Do you, is there any sort of future? Like, uh, where, where does this go? Do you, do you continue the other post? Is there going to be more meetings? Where does this no. go? Okay, I, I'm going to resign, but I will be at that post as <laughs> me because they cannot stop me for hugging, playing Mrs. Santa Claus. I'm a Easter bunny at Easter. I am a clown at Halloween. I play music every Friday so they can, and I danced across the road to dance in the weekend. I will not stop that, and they cannot stop me from doing that if I Leah Whit- for them. Leah Wittig is with us from Tavistock, Ontario, crossing guard uh, with too many rules, says Leah, and just wants to help the kids. Leah, uh, we'll be following the story. Keep us abreast of what's going on if anything changes for you, and good luck. Thank you so much for putting this on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Going into the holiday, we heard a lot about a flat economy, uh, lots of chatter about recession. When hasn't there been a lot of chatter about a recession in a post-pandemic world as we seem to hover on either side or or certainly on one side of it? And now uh, we're hearing about employment numbers pretty much being steady, that good, that bad. What does he feel the economy is going to do moving forward? Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business McMaster University and here now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. So, Marvin, we're turning into, or rather, we're just completing the first uh, week of a new year. Obviously, lots right. of optimism uh, with the new year and such. How do you see Canada faring as we do move forward into the next year? Right. So, if you don't mind, let me just put a little context and then I'll answer your question. 2023 was the year where the Bank of Canada wanted to fight inflation. And this was their gamble. They wanted to raise interest rates enough to cool the economy without sending the economy into a recession. Uh, That's never been done before. Every other time the Bank of Canada has tried this, they've raised the interest rates too much and they've sent it into a recession. So every month in 2023, we all played amateur economists. We all watched the numbers. Is it going to tip into a recession? Is it going to tip into a recession? And one of the bellwether things you look at is employment. Normally, if there's a recession, you see the unemployment numbers go up. Now, in that context, we got the December data. And guess what? We added some jobs. We lost some jobs. And it netted out across the entire country to a gain of exactly 100 jobs, which is nothing. (laughs) So what that really telling us is the Bank of Canada has hit that magical frozen point. No growth, no decline. We're so far, we're steering clear of that recession. Are these great numbers? No, I'd love to see jobs being added. In the first half of the year, 2023, we were adding jobs at the rate of 46,000 a month. In the second half of the year, even with the December data in there, we were doing it at half that pace, around 23,000 jobs. 
but still adding jobs is a lot better than losing jobs. So I am optimistic for 2024 that we'll get through it without a recession. If there is a recession, it'd be very, very, very mild. Can't put enough varies in that sentence. And I think soon, not, not this month, but in a couple more months from now, the story of 2024 is going to be the decline of interest rates. In other words, we're going to start seeing interest rate cuts. But for the moment, everything is okay. Not great, but okay. Uh, so I guess uh, the message here, great, we're avoiding a recession, but we've been talking about it for 100 years. Many have said if you talk about a recession for 100 years, guess what? You're creating the effects of a recession. So what's worse, being in this light recession or going into a light recession or just hanging around uh, you know, the perimeter of it for, for a very long period of time, creating the same effect? Or should we just rip the Band-Aid off? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, we have an interesting situation in Canada that older people, and I'll put myself in that category, have lived through a couple of recessions. For instance, the one in the early 1980s where interest rates got to 20, 21%. So we look at the economic data today and say, this isn't a recession. You call that a recession? This isn't a recession. This is nothing. <laughs> However, if you're a younger person, i.e., someone 40 years of age or younger, you haven't experienced many recessions. And and so, you know, that is a scary word to you. And I think that's why everyone lives in fear of it. And also because the Bank of Canada has never been successful before in this strategy of raising interest rates and not causing recession. If he gets through this all, I think Tiff Macklem deserves the Order of Canada if he can hmm. make this all happen and not cause a recession. So I understand why people are scared. I don't think you should rip the bandage off. We need to remain positive and hopeful. And, and I am. I am positive and hopeful heading into 2024. Many are echoing what you've just said, that we could see at least one, two, maybe even three cuts. The U.S. referring to that have already sort of made that public knowledge. The Bank of Canada having a tendency to play the cards a little closer to the chest. Is this really just six months away? Or less, or less. I think you're going to see the first interest rate cut in late March or at some point in April. Uh, they meet on January 24th. I'm not expecting any change there. And again, tough talk, tough talk from Tiff Macklin because he doesn't want to let you know that the cat's coming out of the bag. But part of the reason why I'm optimistic is there's this thing coming up in 2024 that's also going to dominate the airwaves called the American presidential election. And mm. every time you have an incumbent running again, in this case, it's Joe Biden, they tend to run on the economy. Uh, this was famous under Clinton. It's the economy, stupid. So if I want to win, I want to see those interest rates coming down. And given that pressure from the United States, if they start cutting interest rates, Canada's going to fall in right behind. And that's, again, why I, I'm sure this is going to happen in 2024. Can't tell you the first date of the first cut or how big it's going to be, but it will happen, I think, at the end of the first quarter. If we do, in fact, see rates decrease and, and rates get cut, what's to stop us from going back to where we were? Well, because the amount of, of, of cut is going to be relatively small. In other words, during COVID, we cut the prime interest rates to just a half a percent, the lowest ever in Canadian history. Right mm. now, they're at 5%. So if you cut 5 to 4.75, yes, that's a little bit of inflationary pressure, but compared to where it was, it's not very much. And that's why I think Tiff Macklem is going to be very cautious in cutting these rates. If we do have three quarter point rate uh, decreases, it means by the end of the year, 4.25%. It's a nice respite, 
but nonetheless, it's not a half a percent. So I think he's going to be very cautious. He doesn't want to cause inflation to spiral out of control, but he wants to give people a dividend. You've hung with me over the last year and a half. I think we've had success. Let's give you a little dividend for that. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University, a better 2024. Here's hoping. Marvin, thanks as always. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. I will. Thank you. All right. Uh, we originally had, uh, you know, uh, book Duff Conacher to come in, co-founder of Democracy Watch, to talk about, you know, is there that much of a stink about the Trudeaus going uh, on vacation to Jamaica? And no, it's not that. It's who's paying for it and is there anything owed? But then in the midst of all of this, now we find out that there's not one but two prime ministerial jets that flew down to Jamaica because just like what happened at the G20 in India, uh, uh, one was deemed unserviceable and another one had to be sent down with crew to fix first plane and then two fly back one, I guess, right behind each other. So is the bigger story here the vacation or how many planes it took to get the family to and fro? Duff Conacher here, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you. Hope you are as well. So, Duff, what is the bigger story here, the the actual trip or the fact that it took two planes to get them there? Well, the issue with planes, I mean, planes can break down even if they had flown down by uh, some other airline and and, and had uh, got stuck there because of a mechanical problem. I think the bigger issue is the overall ethics of these situations and and the secrecy surrounding them as well. Uh, and, and in this case, how the PMO misled the media by claiming that Trudeau uh, was paying for his family's stay. And that wasn't true. Um, we'll talk about the, uh, obviously, two different issues here. Let, let's stick with the vacation issue. Uh, as you mentioned, the Prime Minister's office said that this wasn't costing the taxpayers and that the, the, the family or, or the Prime Minister was going to pay for his family's trip, going to reimburse whatever it costs for a commercial airline ticket to go down there and such. And then the PMO said there they issued a clarification. They called it a clarification that, yes, in fact, um, uh, or sorry, no, in fact, he was not paying for it, that in fact it was free. Is that a clarification or does, is that is that the accurate term for this? I, I don't know how the PMO could not know the facts when they were first asked. Um, that what's been determined is it costs more than $9,000 a night to stay there for the f- family, um, size of the Trudeau family. And, and so the... Uh, PMO didn't know actually that the prime minister wasn't paying for that. Um, I think the prime minister would have been pretty clear whether he was or not when, when asked and yeah, it's just kind of ridiculous. I think it's, you know, let's get a nice headline uh, in the initial story and hope that no one pays attention to a follow-up story. Did, did uh, the prime minister's office give any sort of explanation of how they got these facts wrong? No, I haven't seen any. All I've seen is that uh, if the National Post reporters and maybe other reporters too were pushing to find out uh, the details, actually it was Glenn McGregor, a former uh, CTV reporter who's now freelance, who who I guess pushed uh, enough that they had to admit the truth, which is kind of a pattern with, with uh, Trudeau over lots of ethical situations, that the initial line is false. And uh, with the hope, it seems, including in this case, that no one's going to push for the truth and just accept the initial false claim. 
Um, but in this case, uh, Glenn McGregor pushed and uh, was able to get this exclusive story that uh, that he provided to the National Post. And um, yeah, it, I, they, it's something for them to explain. But there's also other, other unethical aspects uh, about this trip. Uh, one of the main one being that um, Trudeau ch- had handpicked the the uh, interim ethics commissioner Conrad von Finkenstein hmm. uh, t- through a secretive process, and he's the guy who's approving the trip. And the way he's approving it is uh, changing the, pos- the position on what the law requires and allows from past commissioners, and essentially allowing all gifts from friends to be given in secret. And that's not what the past commissioners held that the law stated. They said that if even if you were a friend, if the friend had dealings with the federal government in any way, that then the prime minister could not accept, or any other minister or top government official could not accept the gift. Um, and it's very dangerous. Von Sinkenstein has issued some other rulings. Um, we've had some complaints in as well and received back rulings that are really gutting key provisions in the conflict of interest law, which is probably what Trudeau chose him to do. Uh, is to gut these rulings so that uh, the Trudeau and his cabinet won't be found guilty of any uh, ethics violations between now and the next election. Mm. And it's very dangerous because this guy's an interim commissioner and he's serving essentially at the pleasure of Trudeau. Why is it help people understand why it is wrong for the prime minister to accept this, even though it is from a family friend? Well, the problem is what can result from it. Um, Essentially, the gift, of course, creates a conflict of interest for Trudeau with regard to anything affecting the the Green family. That's the family name of, of the family yeah. that, whose resort he's staying at. And um, the ethics law federally and across the country for provinces and territories and even at the municipal level, uh, there's a huge loophole that means even though Trudeau now has a conflict of interest, if he was making a decision that affected anyone in this family, he's allowed to participate in making all of those decisions, even though he has a conflict of interest. That's how bad our ethics law is, that it's uh, essentially, I call it the almost impossible to be in a conflict of interest law. So his gift is allowed to be given in secret because uh, gifts from friends are totally exempt from the act. That's what the new interim ethics commissioner is saying, even when a person has dealings with the government. So no one would even know about gifts from friends. This one is only found out because Glenn McGregor dug for it and pushed the PMO to tell the truth. And so we have secret gifts coming from friends to the prime minister, other cabinet ministers, and then they're allowed to take part in decisions that affect those friends. Hmm. That's really dangerous. That's essentially saying, go ahead, do whatever you want, accept gifts that are really, what are they? Really, really bribes. Friends are dealing with the government, maybe lobbying the government in the future at some point. They can give you a secret gift and then you can return the favor later on. And it's all in secret with no disclosure that there was a gift in the first place or that you're participating in a decision that affects them unless we happen to find out because a reporter digs for it or a whistleblower blows the whistle. That's not the way ethics rules should be working, and it just shows how, how much our ethics laws and the enforcement system are a sad joke, that they allow for secret unethical dealings and, and favor trading. Jeff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, commenting on the Prime Minister's family vacation down to Jamaica and staying at a friend's resort down there at no cost. Stuff as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
Thank you. I'll keep you updated as we try and stop uh, Trudeau from appointing the interim ethics commissioner, Conrad Van Finkenstein, to a seven-year term, which would be really just be even more dangerous because it would mean seven years of the rules being gutted and no one mm. being found guilty, even though they're acting unethically. Let's bring in Scott Radley, head of the Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. I like that title, head of the Scott Radley Show now. that's what I've been promoted this year. Um, you know, I'm getting all flustered again. So, you know, it's it's funny. We were talking about the vacation, and people are mixed opinion upon that. And it's not really about the the vacation and him taking a vacation. Of course, he deserves a vacation. It's that he's taking a free one uh, from a friend who owns a resort, and that's a conflict of interest. But this just draws more attention to it when we find out that when the uh, plane's taken off to bring the prime minister back, whoops a daisy! It's uh, needs some jumper cables, and they got to fly another Challenger jet down there and then two of them fly back one right behind each other it just can't things just can't get any better for this man scott we hear often that from politicians that essentially they are especially cabinet ministers they are executives they are running the country they are being executives of the country and And they are and, and that's fine i don't mind that description of it i think that's a fair description of it But almost every large corporation has rules about who can give executives gifts because there are the, it comes naturally with the assumption that if I give you something really nice, Scott, if I give you something really expensive, there's a quid pro quo, you're going to give me something back, whether it's the same, whether it's in kind, whether it's a contract. I will feel like I owe you something if I get something from you. There's no way that you can give somebody $84,000 and you are not in some way expecting that when you call the prime minister's office, he is going to take your call and whether he does exactly what you want or not, you can't call the PMO and get them to pick up the the line. I can't. Everyone listening can't. Now, I know there are other people who have positions of power, but basically you are buying access, whether you want to admit it or not, you're buying access to the highest levels of government. That's exactly what the conflict of interest rules are supposed to be yeah. trying to prevent. I, I was listening to Duff with you beforehand and I'm with, I'm with Duff. I cannot imagine how the head of the, um, what's the guy who, that you were talking about? The, uh, um, the ethics commissioner. Yes. How the ethics commissioner looks at this and says, nah, I don't, how could there possibly be a problem here? I, when I, at the spectator where I work. Well, when they've changed the rules, I guess you're not breaking the rules. Yeah, but like at the spectator work, we have very, and we're like small potatoes compared to this, but we have very specific rules about what we can accept. And it's almost nothing because you don't want the person, forget even, even if Trudeau is a man of principles that exceed all others. And based on his previous problems with ethics, I don't know that that's a fair statement, but even if we decide in 2024, he has turned a corner and he is now a man beyond reproach ethics. There's not even a question. There is the perception that comes with it now as well. When you are someone who is in a position of power like that. And I got to tell you, every single time someone does something like this, you got to believe that everyone is just assuming that that guy who gave him this has an end to the office and is going to get something. Canada's not broken, but the prime minister's planes are along with the economy, housing, healthcare. Uh, well, maybe it's uh, the prime minister that's broken. Let, let's say one other thing, Scott, you mentioned the planes and, um, 
Look, I don't. I, he is the prime minister. He is entitled to vacation. Call WestJet. Call WestJet. No, and 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 he and I don't expect him to fly commercial. There, I no, I, I have no, no problem with the prime minister taking the government plane for sure. security and everything else. I have no issue with that. No. However, however, there have I don't know that we have ever had a prime minister who has spent more time preaching and pointing fingers and demanding that we be all environmental and carbon getting rid of and all the rest. And then this is what happened. Like it, two the, planes, not one, the two first, planes. The first thing that should have happened as soon as this story got out is the prime minister should have come forward and said, you know what? I know it's going to cost my family tens of thousands of dollars, but we are paying the carbon tax or the carbon, whatever on the cost <laughs> out of my pocket on these two flights, because I'm demanding that of you. Therefore I should be leading. I shouldn't be pushed into this. I should be jumping in front of this one and leading the way and saying, see, and if, and if, if his government's comments all the time that, Hey, everything you put into paying these carbon taxes, you get back more than that. Well, he'll make a profit on it then. It would be beautiful. But yeah, I haven't heard that point. yet. I haven't heard, I haven't heard. And again, he might at some point say this now, but he shouldn't have had to have been corralled into doing this. This should have been, yeah, I wow. believe so strongly in this, it's going to cost me $25,000. I got a few bucks in the Trudeau foundation. I'm sure that my dad left me. I can pay this, but at least it's a leading by example situation, but it's not. And we're all going to pay more carbon taxes this year, except for him. It's your and my's fault. It's got nothing to do with him. It's Canadians. You know, Canadians got to do better. That's what it is. Uh, Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. Read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.